as long-time listeners of the podcast will know, I'm a bit of an old-school wrestling fan. And on today's show, I'm thrilled to talk to an author who's written what I genuinely consider one of the best wrestling biographies I've ever read. And it's fair to say I've read a few as well. Dynamite and Davy, The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. It tells a fascinating story of two men who both individually and as a tag team put the distinctive British mark on the wrestling world as key figures of the golden age of WWF wrestling and beyond. It's a thrilling and equally tragic tale of the tempestuous dynamite kid Tommy Billington and the future intercontinental champion Davy Boy Smith, two cousins from the wrestling mecca of Wigan who rose to superstardom both individually and as many rightly cite in my opinion one of the greatest and most influential tag teams in wrestling history. So without further ado, I'm absolutely thrilled to say a big hello to Steve Bell. Thank you, Damien. Thanks for that introduction. Now, as as I always say with the book uh, and with your introduction, it's far more about Dynamite and David than it is me. It's their story, not mine. <laughs> but uh, I'm just glad to sort of bring it to everybody. So, so yeah, I'm glad that my name can be mentioned in in that sort of introduction alongside theirs. That's absolutely brilliant, mate. And it's, I'm, I'm really pleased to have you on as well because... Um... I mean, I'm not not just saying this, I'm not just blowing smoke or anything, but I, I genuinely enjoyed your book. I, I, it was one of those that um, I was looking forward to it coming out and I, I really, really enjoyed it. We'll go into it a bit later on, but even the structure of it and the way that you, you actually work through the, the kind of respective stories, because it's a complicated story, you know, dealing with two two individuals who then come together and then split apart again and it's it's like one of those great books about classic bands. Do you know what I mean? That that sometimes they're really hard to read, and other times you get one, and it's just a dream. And and yours was just like that, mate. Really, yeah. really enjoyable. Well, it it does mean so much, and I know that's like an easy thing that everybody might be expected to say. But this is my third book, and mm. more so with the either of the other two as fantastic, fantastic as it was to get positive feedback, which I did. With this one, it means so much more because because of the things and the aspects that you speak about, it's a con- complicated story, controversial story at times. And mm-hmm. um, because of the um, drama, you might say, that I went through with um, some people in terms of getting it over the line uh, and yeah. treading that balance uh I always wanted and I always claimed and always said that it would be overall positive, you know, that yeah. despite what people knew or thought of in the past, that I felt that they would come out of reading this book with um, a positive, a firmly positive spin put on both guys uh, that were always my aim. Um, and that was, uh, it's sort of a really fine line to tread between um, telling the full story, uh, making sure that, you don't, you know, do a WWE type whitewashing of yeah. um, of what's gone on, but also um, not wanting to make the guys, you know, these guys aren't there to defend themselves. I don't want to make the legacies worse. I want to make the legacies better. So um, treading that line was difficult, and I had people challenging me on that. Um, mm. You know, what on earth do you think you're doing kind of questions. Uh, yeah. You, you, yeah. you can't write this, you can't write that. Um, and so... I did feel that the reviews, I, I was so anxious. It's like sleepless nights kind of anxious about um, when the reviews were going to start coming in and it were out there in the big bad world. Um, and I thought, you know, if if the reviews start coming in and people accuse it of being 
a negative spin on the guys or accuse it of not being a good book or the quality not being there or whatever. Yeah. Uh, all the all the stress and the anguish that I went through to get it over the line would have almost been well, had it been proving them people right and mm, um, mm. and proving myself almost wrong, even though I always knew what I wanted to do, and I had yeah. I had my supporters or many supporters as well within the families, uh, and and yeah, we ended up where we ended up, and then the, as soon as the review started coming, it read exactly what you've said. Um, supremely positive overall uh, emotional roller coaster uh, them kind of words and yeah it, it just did mean the world and continues to mean the world to me it's brilliant i mean it, it really is and, and you're right i mean we'll come on to this as we talk a bit more about um you know dynamite and, and davy boy but it is a controversial story and it, it is difficult to tell that story sometimes without, I suppose it must be difficult to resist the temptation for a bit of that kind of controversy and a bit of that kind of, you know, um, spin, because I mean, things like dark side of the ring, which, which did a number on, on dynamite. I mean, some, some might argue quite literally did a number on him. Um, you know, they, they, they're going for that more kind of salacious kind of line, aren't they? Where, you know, it's gotta be a, a, a really shocking story. And, Yes, there are elements of that in both their lives when you when you read about it and you know a bit more, but you really do present it in a very level and factual um, manner, which I found it quite refreshing. You know, it didn't read like it was sensationalist in any way. And I've got to be honest, the, the bit kind of at the end with Bronwyn where she, she does the afterward talking about going back and seeing her dad after all those years and, and oh, man, I was in tears. You know, it genuinely was a really emotional wrap to the book that and i thought it was it was absolutely tremendous yeah well um when bronwyn told me that story um you know i, I do class myself as being a good storyteller and being able to you know i i, I write the book for, obviously you will know because you've read it but for people that haven't I, I write the book all in other than the forward which is by ross art and the afterward which is by bronwyn uh i write it all in my voice as the narrator, you know, I, mm. I don't, I don't dip in and out and do long quotes or almost all of it. Anyway, I don't do long quotes. And then, you know, so-and-so said this, but then so-and-so said that and where you end up, the reader don't really know the answer. And, you know, it just ends up being, it just ends up being a collection of other people's quotes. I don't do that. Yeah. I'm a storyteller. I want to tell the story from A to B to C. Uh, and when Bronwyn told me that story, it, it I realized that that was the only bit that I didn't feel like I could tell better than her. I felt like it, yeah. well, it, it was, it was her story to tell. It wasn't my story to tell. And yeah. so, um, yeah, we're really proud and pleased that she accepted my invitation to do that. It's something that she's really proud of. We've become good friends. We speak on a weekly basis. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I, having, having that level of support really took it to the next level from what I initially imagined the, the Bulldogs book would be. What I wanted to do will bring, um, Dynamite and David's story back to the UK. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm from, I'm a Yorkshireman. Um, I, I work with a UK publisher. Almost all that's been done. You mentioned Dark Side of the Ring. You know, there's only so much that can fit into a 40 minute documentary, mm. uh, especially one that's called Dark Side of the Ring. You know, it were, <laughs> it were always going to be what it was. They didn't have the yeah. time or the inclination to, uh, to give it the the level of context that I could do in a 400 page book. Um, so. I really wanted to bring their story back home. It's been, you know, um, if you if you take it t- together as a collection of other pro- uh, productions and publications, you know, uh, Brett Hart speaks a lot about him in his book. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, Tom did his own 
quite short yeah. autobiography. Um, they get mentioned a lot in others. Mick Foley's book mentions things like that. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it can almost for somebody who's an ardent wrestling fan, wrestling reader, watch a lot of wrestling documentaries. They know they'll probably know a lot of the stories in the back of the mind, but what what I don't think does happen when you piece it together like that in sort of a jigsaw format uh, over years and years and years from various different publications where that's not the main story is you just don't get that context. And that's what I were obsessed with piecing together where they were in their lives, what ages they were, what the relationships were with each other at the time. Um, and so what, what forced them into these often bad decisions that they made and, um, where they ended up in life and the roller coaster ride that their relationship took as cousins, as partners, as friends, as enemies. Um, that's the story that I didn't feel ever had been told and certainly not with the context and, uh, and the story. But certain people just think that if you're talking about the fact that, you know, Davey uh, was... You know, addicted. Oh, that's that's my dog. Mm. That's my dog barking. <laughs> you know, that, da- that Davy was addicted to um, painkillers, or that yeah. you know he took a lot of steroids, or that he yeah. got involved in uh, with a violent biker gang. You know, almost inadvertently. Mm. But you know, certain people thought that the moment that I was talking about them things, context and everything almost didn't matter. The fact that I was talking about things that them yeah. things meant that meant that I was doing some kind of smear piece on him and nothing could be further from the truth. But um, yeah, so where I had some a lot of family members supporting me and understanding and saying that it was the exact right way to go about it, I, you know, I did have a couple of challenges on that, which yeah. which did um, make it real really stressful towards the end of the process. I can imagine. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, and we'll come on to that a bit later on because I'm really interested in... in the elements around research and some of the people you spoke to, some yeah. of the people maybe that you, you couldn't speak to. Um, but just to go back to, so this is your third book, isn't it? You know, yeah. you did um, From Triumph to Tragedy, which I won't try and uh, read the whole title because I'll never pronounce it. And uh, The Man of All Talents. So yeah. did you always want to be a writer? Um, you know, because I always wanted to be, an, I wanted to be two things and it was either, you know, James Bond or an artist. And I was too short to be James Bond. And too poor and I'm, I'm a kind of artist but it's not me not me you know me full-time job so did you always want to be a writer or well you know right, is this right, what you fell into right it's still not my um fullest fullest time job i suppose uh, yeah. yeah what i discovered it later in life what i, I was sport obsessed as a as a kid even through all my adolescence in my twenties and even to a large extent now I was sport obsessed and I've, I've always had a bit of a natural um, ability as a storyteller. Yeah. And I got A's in English. I don't know why. I don't know who, what teacher or career's guidance didn't spot it, but you know, mm. I, I had this massive sporting obsession uh, and I was good at sort of art and design. I did well in that. And I got A's and even A stars in English and English literature. I can't remember which way around. Um, and nobody ever said journalism or sports journalism might be for you. So uh, I went into engineering and I, I don't knock it. I've, I can't knock it one bit. It's given me a wonderful life. And it's actually given me the freedom and the time to be able to explore other things. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, I'm just going to shut the door because the dog. 
<laughs> I'll let her get on with it. Um, and so, um, what happened away in 2014? I went to Brazil for six weeks for the for the World Cup. Uh, me and two friends just decided once in a lifetime adventure, let's go, let's mm. go do it. We we're all sort of single at the time and had um, the sort of jobs that could enable us to do it. And we spent a couple of years saving up and planning for it. And uh, But by then, around that sort of time, I got this dawn of realisation. I'd have been sort of in my, mid, uh, my late 20s then. Uh, and... Uh, I realised that I'd sort of missed that calling in life. Um, it's hard to say that I had any regrets because I'd, I'd, I'd got this good lifestyle and this good job. Um, but I thought, yeah, sports writing, sports writing is really what I should have been doing. Um, mm. I'd start doing bits of writing just for my own sanity, I suppose, really, you know, writing things down on a daily basis, keeping diaries. And uh, I'd, At one point, I even, I haven't told many people this, but at one point I thought about stand-up comedy as well, just in terms of you know, being able to tell Fantastic. stories and wanting to, yeah, and, yeah. you know, I, I thought about these things, what could I, should I do this, should I do that? Um, and so when I went to Brazil, I kept some diaries and that, thinking there might be something come out of that when I got home. And then it, there wasn't really, you know, um, but then what it did give me, I made some contacts out there, one friend in particular, Brazilian uh wonderful wonderful gentleman uh, called Sergio and we kept in touch and a couple of years after I got home the Chapacoense air disaster happened I don't know if that means a lot to, to anybody that's listening but um a Brazilian football team mm. was on the on on a plane on the way to the biggest match of their lives which was the final of the equivalent of their equivalent of the Europa League and um, didn't mean much to me at the time. I knew the match was coming up. I remember reading about it, and uh, because I'd got this sort of bit of an affinity with Brazilian football from coming home. Yeah. Uh, and then the next day, I woke up to you know I remember BBC News and Sky Sports News both pinged my phone at night when I woke up and. Uh, so that's weird that both of them in middle at night, you know, you know, it's something mm. that's happened abroad. Donald Trump mm. were knocking about at the time, you know, so our, our, uh, well, he was just like, on his way to being elected. So uh, you want abnormal to wake up to maybe one news story from <laughs> from other side of the world it, yeah. uh, when I woke up in the morning. Uh, but two, and one from Sky Sports and one from BBC News. And when I opened up, I couldn't believe it. I saw the word Chapacoense and it turned out the flight had crashed. I kept my eye on it all day and it, the tragedy mm. just got worse and worse. So more and more, the death count was carried on going up. Um, mm. And it made our news stream for all of a few days. But I was completely obsessed with story. And I was speaking to my friend Sergio about it. And he was sending me news articles from Brazil. He was sending me news bulletins and uh, he was... He was putting me subtitles on, bless him. He was putting me subtitles on uh, news pieces and things from Brazil. And so I ended up accidentally, over the course of the next weeks weeks and months that came, I ended up probably being the almost uh, Western expert on the subject. And I was completely obsessed with it. And what I became more obsessed with anything was the sporting story as opposed to the actual tragedy. The tragedy was right. unbelievable. But it turned out that over the course of eight or nine years, they'd gone from the equivalent of our uh, below the conference to, uh, and that rose up all the way through promotion after promotion. This was nothing to do with money or anything like that. It was pure hard work. A lot of them were the same players. So I started tracking these players' careers. You know, these guys were now tragically dead and I started tracking yeah. their careers, got absolutely obsessed with the story. And I thought, I, don't know, I, I asked back to this thing a couple of years back that I thought, oh, no, I really should be a, a sports writer. And I thought, if if I'm ever going to do it, it's going to be about this. Mm. There's no point in carrying on saying shoulda, woulda, coulda. I've got, I've got 
the story here. Um, if I'm going to do it, it's going to be this. So I started writing it. No idea where I'm going with it. No idea about getting published. No idea about self-publishing. No idea about anything. Really. I just started doing mm-hmm. it. I just to put pen to paper. And, um, I got halfway through and obviously a big commitment on your time and things. So I, uh, I were in two minds whether to carry on with I think I was sort of 40,000 words in, I was 30, 40,000 words in. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to try. I did a bit of research about publishers and stuff. So I tried a few publishers and just give give them a bit of a pitch and whatever, and no pun intended, pitch publishing. Uh, yeah. Well, the ones that got back to me, I've got a couple of not for us quite right now, which is what I were expecting. You know, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. All the research that I'd done suggested that, somebody completely out of the blue who didn't have a writing background, didn't have a journalist background or anything like that. Um, had almost zero chance of getting traditionally published uh, uh, to take them on and, and fund it and do it. And and I were amazed one day I was just laid in bed and I got an email back from Paul from Pitch Publishing and it just said, I like it. I love it. Let's go for it. Let's do it. And wow, mm-hmm. you know, it sort of blew my mind. Uh, so I went, finished it. It received really well uh, like phenomenally well um and so i were in this position where pitch were willing to back me to do another uh, another book and i just thought well you know i'd, I'd have killed for this a, a few years ago and even though it is a big commitment on your time when you're working full-time i've got a young boy and um i just thought i've got to do it and i i, I know about this story of a I'm from Huddersfield. I live in Huddersfield now, and there's a, a real, real local hero, and I don't use the word hero um, lightly on this mm. one. Uh, he was one of the pioneers of rugby league, one of the still regarded as one of the greatest ever rugby league players of all time. Uh, he went off to World War One, bona fide war hero, um, got all the medals that you can possibly get for the amount of lives that he saved, uh, but came home almost blown to pieces full of full of shellings and mm. shrapnel and um got told he should never do anything too physical again he, he could live, live a relatively normal life is what they said to him and but he got bored of that and instead he went back to rugby league went back down to Huddersfield uh, and great britain and won had a sort of a second hall of fame rugby career and then when that were over again couldn't just hang the sporting boots up he went into professional wrestling and he became Britain's first ever world heavyweight champion. Uh, it's a truly amazing story. Um, yeah. And that opened lots of doors for me. It ended up on front page of a lot of newspapers. It got picked up by the mirror group of papers, um, not just the daily mirror, but they, so I didn't know at time, but the mirror group sort of owns three or four of the daily nationals. And uh, right. they ran with it as their, uh, almost light-hearted, if you like, um, Remembrance Day yeah. feature, front page. Um, and so it was, phenom- it was phenomenally well-received. And at the same time, so I'd got this, I'm sure your next question, <laughs> I might presume might be how I became a wrestling fan. So I was already a huge wrestling fan, or I had been a huge wrestling fan. Yeah. I read a lot of books, and I knew lots and lots and lots about the Bulldog story. It was something that was burning away at me for... 15 year maybe at that time this amazing story about these two cousins from Wigan from a mining town just like mine they yeah. were Goldborn I were Featherstone um, I, I would nowhere near being a writer when I first discovered their story but yeah 
era was and I'd written a book, I'd started getting contacts within the wrestling journalism world, people contacting me about the Douglas Clark book, uh, wanting to do reviews on it, wanting to interview me. Uh, ironically, I'd ended up my research had followed all the way up to Douglas Clark, almost pioneering a lot of the uh, mainstream pro wrestling era in the north of England and mm. how that tied into Wigan and the snake pit. And, mm. and so my research had carried on and Dynamite and Davey had actually come up towards the very, very tail end of my research. And it just felt like serendipity, you know, kismet when, yeah, when yeah. the publisher offered me a third book and I'd got this burning desire to, to, to probably do the Bulldogs thing. And it, that, it that felt, it. it felt like it was perfect. And so that is yeah. where we ended up. And I didn't feel, I don't think if it had made that, that leap to the mainstream as it did getting that front page exposure for the Douglas Clark book. I don't, I, th- I think I'd have still got a little bit too much imposter syndrome to do, oh, yeah. to do yeah. Dynamite and David. I think I thought it were a little bit too mainstream for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Given the fact it was still just sort of a bit of a hobby at time, but that the, fe- the feedback from that gave me a real boost of confidence and enabled me to be able to do it. It's brilliant. So we just go back a step then. So um, obviously he's, he's, we've had a little bit of a chat and, you know, as I explained, I'm a, I'm a huge wrestling fan. I'm a bit older than you. So, um, you know, I go back to like the world of sport in the seventies and, and watching wrestling with my dad and my hero um, growing up was, was uh, a guy called the amazing Kung Fu, which I'm sure you're yes. familiar with. I know what you mean. Um, and interestingly enough, um, a weird circumstance of life. Um, it's he turned out to be my wife's best friend's dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so, actually go on. And Eddie and Eddie's like Eddie Hamilton is you know, the amazing Gulf yeah. He was this fantastic for those who don't know, he was this absolutely brilliant kind of um martial arts based wrestler and he did lots of jujitsu and stuff like that. And he used to wear a mask and he was unmasked with Kendo and all this sort of stuff. But he was little. Did you did you know that he was from Belfast? A really thick Irish accent. And when I first met, I couldn't understand the word he said. But to be honest with you, I just agreed with everything because I was so <laughs> awestruck that I'd met him. And what a guy! What an absolute guy! Well, it turns out. Sorry to interrupt. Um, it it's turns right. out um, William Regal. I don't know if you know. He's just started a podcast of his own, so I've been listening to that every week. So I find him a yep. sort of real fascinating character. Um, and last week he talked about. Kung Fu Eddie Amel oh. an awful lot he did most of the episode were based on Fit Finlay and yeah. Eddie Amel had effectively trained Fit Finlay and they had loads of explosive yeah. matches with and against each other and he talked you know, about an awful lot it's it's amazing because obviously I've known him now for bloody hell 30 years probably known him mm. um what a guy doesn't doesn't really talk about his ring days much you know um but when he does, some of the stories are just absolutely oh, yeah. out of this world. And he's he's a he's a naturally engaging and funny guy anyway. You know, he's always funny, always selling jokes and stuff. But one of the things that really kind of fascinated me with with Eddie was that it was the first time and I, I watched this again recently on I was looking at some YouTube stuff and he has a because uh, he had some tremendous matches with Rollerball Rocco, you know, that quite a yes. you know, quite a feud going on for a number of years. And there's a great one. I don't know if you remember it, but um, it's probably at Blackburn or something like that. And they have this match. And, you know, of course, Eddie being the hero, you know, he ends up getting beat by Rocco. He cheats and, and it spills into the, you know, the afters are down in the corridor behind the ring. And mm-hmm. there's, there's this kind of like true, like, 
kayfabe moment where they're fighting in the corridor and people trying to break them up and they keep it going and keep it going. And do you know what? As a kid, I was like, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I was like, oh, this is, this is incredible. You know, they're fighting in the corridors, this, the rings out there and they're, they're carrying on and, and it was absolutely brilliant. And even watching it now, it's one of the few occasions that I can think of where British wrestling had that element of, of, you know, that kind of American, the afters, you know, to keep, to keep the story driving, to keep the feud going. Absolutely brilliant. But British wrestling were almost pioneering in, in their ways. We're all sort of starting to uh, come together, all the different aspects of different wrestling promotions and things from around the world and styles from around the world. We're all starting to come together around that time. So, and, and British wrestling inspired so much when you look back at some, I've had to do an awful lot of research on it's sensational how much, um, especially Wigan and the Snake Pit and mm. people who trained there, uh, how they inspired so much. But yeah, um, still at that time, or just before, sort of five or ten years before the time that you're on about, it would have largely, in Britain, it would have been presented as a completely legitimate contest, you know, broken down into yeah. rounds and that are shaking hands before and after yeah, mostly yeah, and, yeah. and all that. Uh, so, So they got the the big drama and storytelling and um, as you say, it all going off before and after the ring bell and all that. Uh, Brilliant. That was something that got almost imported from other countries. Whereas other countries thought what they got from us was that legitimacy, that, uh, that the way to be able to uh, present wrestling, particularly before and after the ring bell, actually the match has been mm. something so legitimate and so real with the, with the catchers catch on style, which obviously, yeah. are, um, so ingrained with Wigan and well, yeah. uh, Lancashire, I suppose. Yeah. And, and of course, because Ed trained um, in the dungeon as well, you know, he went over and did some stuff in Stampede and stuff. Mm. So he trained with, with, with the hearts. And, and I think part of that probably came back with him, you know, that element of the, the I wouldn't say the showbiz, but you know, that the, he was, he was a real showman, you know, he really knew how to, how to kind of play the audience and stuff. And, yeah, it was, it was great. So I guess my question I was trying to get to before I went off on my, my usual amazing Kung Fu uh, rant that I do, because, you know, I, I absolutely adore the guy, um, was when you were growing up, what kind of era were wrestling were you watching? Was it probably early, late 80s, early 90s that yeah, caught well, you initially? Late, late, yeah, well, it was early 80s, so that is why. Right. Um, what I remember, I don't remember any of the sort of traditional British stuff, the the, the world of sport type stuff. Really? Actually, from right. when it was live and on, I've seen lots now looking back, but at the time it didn't mean anything to me. Um, yeah. I, I was sort of eight, nine-year-old in the early 90s as Davey was. Davey was the British Bulldog and it was the, yeah. it was the, the proper Ulco. I remember the, my very first would have been, you know, your Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant. Uh type era and then that moved on to sort of Davey and Brett I remember strongly and you know you the the occupational gimmicks that started coming here so I am big boss man well and, and your Kamala and people like that you know yeah yeah that, that real extra colorful time is what grabbed yeah. up but we were we were the ultimate target demographic especially for when Sky TV and Vince signed the big money deal uh, yeah. that effectively did away with if there was anything left of um mainstream British wrestling in terms of getting any TV exposure that completely did away with that then. And it was just WWF mm. glitz and glamour and um, these larger than life, almost cartoon type superheroes piped into us uh, at 
eight, nine year old, you know, that we couldn't yeah. get away from it and you couldn't, and it, it captured us all uh, as young lads. And so Davey, and it, it's amazing things like, that. I always think about football as well, so football obsessed, you, it gives you a grounding in a lot of things and things like geography, you know, and it probably first yeah. time, first time I ever come across <laughs> what the Union Jack was and meant, well, because, because David yeah. Boy Smith were carrying it around every yeah, week yeah. and wearing it on his tights. So it, it's one of the first things that I remember is that, is uh, cheering for Davey. And obviously then it went through a big lull. We didn't have the same exposure to WCW. And in the mid-90s, um, WWF had a sort of a big lull, as we know. The yeah. after effects of the Hulk Hogan era and the steroid trials and yeah, everything. Yeah. And, and um, obviously, I, being then sort of 11, 12, 13-year-old, a lot more into football and probably thought I was far too cool for wrestling at that point. But then... 1998, 9, 2000 came along, the Attitude Era, what else yeah. did a young lad want except, you know, The Rock and Stone Cold and yes, Trish Stratus, you know, yeah. what, <laughs> what, what else could a 16, 17 year old lad want? So, so for second time in the space of 10 years, I was Vince's target demographic and yeah. went, got back into it with Klein and Sinker. Now, the thing there is, and this is going to tie in with what I mentioned earlier, the thing there is, Davey, and The Undertaker, looking back, were the only two that transcended the, in terms of WWF. They were the only two that had transcended them eras. Davey mm. was obviously severely coming to the end of his career. Um, and, you know, he were in that Jeans and Doc Martens uh, era of his of his career. And, and like I said, I think him and The Undertaker were the only two that really were still about in WWF from that yeah. first. So I'd gone... But by then, being sort of 16, 17, I'd become... Sort of geographically and socially aware, and I'd learned from reading, reading a lot of the magazines, and I, st- I read Mick Foley's book. Uh, I were aware that David was from Wigan and where Wigan was, and it was so close to me. I, I knew mm. about my dad being a miner and the, the mining mm. strike and all that, and um, I, I had a sense of heritage about me, and I, I understood yeah. that David had that same heritage, and he were only from. And I was drive away from me. Uh, so what uh, what had been this cartoon superhero, larger than life character, um, a few years later was somebody who I felt I could almost relate to, you know? And Yeah, yeah. And so then when he died in 2002, that really hit me. I remember exactly where mm. I was when I heard the news. And yeah, um, but by then, as I say, I'd started really looking into backstage type yes. stuff with wrestling. Yeah. I got really into that. So I started to know all about the steroids and the painkillers and things like that. Yeah. So it all just started to knit together. But in the meantime, what had happened was um, me and my brother got hugely into it and we wanted to know everything that we'd missed and going further back than that. So we started, our friend Pete didn't do that where he thought he was too cool for wrestling. He'd stayed, he'd stayed a big fan the whole way through and he'd even right. cura- curated a massive collection of VHSs, all the pay-per-views. Going Fantastic. right back to WrestleMania one, so me and my brother started bringing them on by sackful and watching War <sighs> per night. Starting WrestleMania one, so when we got to WrestleMania two, the British Bulldogs were there. Now I only oh. remember the I only remember the British Bulldog. I'm thinking it was the British Bulldog. So I'm thinking it was this, it was this jobber that they've got off street. <laughs> you know that was my first thought because I, yeah. I didn't I, I didn't know the Dynamite Kid then. I didn't know Tom Millman. Um So I thought Dave is the star. They've just got some. British guy to go with him so that they can have British Bulldogs plural. I didn't know that mm. that had come first. I had put the timeline together and everything like that in my mind at that point. And so 
and and Tom at that point especially as it went on and we'd got the Survivor Series match and the SummerSlam match and the Survivor Series matches in particular, you know, Tom is past his best by that point. He's got the severe injuries and he's only doing minutes or maybe even seconds long cameos, really. So it's difficult. It was difficult then for me to understand just how good he was and sensational and groundbreaking he was. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Mick Foley's book explained it a little bit to me. I started, that was sort of when I really peeled the first layer of the onion back. Uh, and then a few years later, Brett's book came out. Uh, in between, I'd learned about them being first cousins. And mm-hmm. I really started to piece the story together. I thought, wow, these first cousins from the same little mining village, quite close to me, mm-hmm. from that heritage, you know, and I, I, I found out that all the families were um, miners, just like mine were. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really started to piece this story together, and it really started hitting home to me. And then as I did more research, started finding out some of the more sort of dark and horror stories, particularly about Tom um, mm. that were about at the time. And yeah, it was just really, it, it gripped me completely. And I knew that there was a story there to tell. And as I said earlier, it was like 15 years later that I got this door swung open for me to yeah. walk through that I was the man actually going to be able to deliver it. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? Cause I don't think it's hard to explain to people now. Um, just how different the the WWF was when it hit. You know, it was like Sky and B Sky B and all that kind of stuff. And we just had satellite TV really landing and they imported it over. And, you know, and then you'd start to see WCW on, it used to be an ITV and like, you know, because that's when they first started doing all night TV. And they'd put a lot of American stuff on, on ITV at like kind of one, two in the morning. You know, you get married with children, you get America's yeah. top 10 movies and you get WCW, but it was always inconsistent when it was on. And it was incredible just to see these, these, like you say, almost like, cause I'm, I'm a comic book artist and a huge fan of comic books. And they were like comic book characters in real life, you know. The first time you see like Randy Savage or somebody like Roddy Piper coming out and, and you know, the answer is, it's just, it's a completely different world from what I've grown up watching, you know, because my dad was a miner as well, um, worked at Ball Colliery and, you know, we'd spend Saturday afternoons kind of either going watching Latics or we'd, I'd be sat on his knee and we'd be watching, we'd be waiting for the wrestling to come on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just, it was just, I can't explain to people how different it was. And it's a bit like the NFL when I first started watching the NFL when that, that arrived in 83. And it was like, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. You know, it was like, it was like from Venus or something. It was like just so colourful yeah, and, and bizarre and, and exotic. And it's it was like, and, but at its heart, it's the same thing. But what America had learnt first was the ultimate pizzazz and the yeah. the, pro, the production and the um, you know the, the, the Titantron eventually and the fireworks and everything like that. That were where they were decades ahead of us. And um, it coming at that time that it did just after Greg Dyke had made the decision to get away with uh, British wrestling on mainstream TV mm-hmm. and get away with, uh, get it off World of Sport. Um, it, the timing was just absolutely perfect for Vince as he were rolling through with this juggernaut yeah. taking over the world with wrestling. And, and it was like nothing anybody would ever seen and completely, uh, we're all just obsessed, you know, yeah. figures. I mean, again, toys, I was a bit older video, than you, but... Video you, games. It was yeah. Just, yeah. Even I was obsessed, you know what I mean? I can still remember taking my dad to, um, to go and see like... Uh, 
it was when it was the UK Rampage and it was in Manchester. Yeah. And um, we drove down to see it and, you know, it was a great bill. And it was just, I just remember us having so much fun watching it. Do you know what I mean? Even though, like, you know, we were a bit clued up, obviously, at that point. Yeah, yeah. We were very clued up at that point. But it wasn't about that. It was about the fun. It was about the, you know, the whole event was the thing. You know, it wasn't just kind of... Um, Let's go and pick it apart, and I mean that's the problem now. I think there is there's too much with, with the kind yeah, of the internet and stuff. It's kind of lost its mystique. Unfortunately, a bit. I don't think yeah. I don't think pro wrestling was ever would ever have been uh, a thing if the internet had a no. had, a come, had a come along before it. You know, I Absolutely think agree. the two things just don't go hand in hand. I'm afraid, yeah, or, on, you, on various levels, so, social yeah. media especially. I mean, I've, I've had to just because, as I say. It's, I'm the second wrestling book in and um, I'm absolutely fascinated with the history of it and yes. the, all the characters and uh, backstage stories and I'm so, I'm all, I've almost accidentally become a little bit of an historian on it all yet I can't really watch the modern day product I don't watch the modern day product um, and that's partly got and I'm, I'll be honest because a lot of people who I uh, so you know like people like Dave Meltzer have read the book and mm. give it a glowing review and a lot of these uh, these people I've become in contact with and some my Twitter, especially the one that I've set up for the book, dedicated one for the book is, is set up almost. It's largely just a wrestling community that I'm, Mm. that I'm operating in or that, that that's loaded into. And it's just completely toxic. If I'm honest, you know, yes. And I I just thought, why 2022 and pro wrestling compared to what I, the two, eras of pro wrestling that I love, which were the, the golden generation, it's now called when I were a kid, and the Attitude Era, it was just fun. It yes. was That was it. You didn't need to overthink it. You didn't need to overanalyze it. It was just fun. Uh, two hours, two hour long shows went by in the blink of an eye, and yep. you had fun, and uh, you had talking about things to talk about, things to laugh about, uh, things to get excited about. Now it's just everybody analysing it within an oh, inch of its it, life. Do you know, mate, gets on my tits, I'll be uh, honest with you. And it's the same with everything, isn't it? You yeah, can't I mean I'm a huge true. Star Wars fan. You can't even watch Star Wars without somebody telling you that, that you shouldn't be watching it because it's blah blah blah. And it's like we suck the fun out of everything, but you're right. I mean, I don't watch the modern product, as they call it, which is, tells you something, doesn't it? You know, but I, I mean, I just that I only ever really watch probably up to maybe borderline around just into the early two thousands, and that that's as far as I'll go because after that, then I start to, you know, I start to kind of lose a little bit of interest. But particularly, I wouldn't. I've not watched a modern pay per view or anything for donkey's years, and I and I have got no intention of. I'd rather go back and watch Survivor Series '88. You know what I mean? Or yeah, a bit like the that, Summer yeah. Slams. You know, because I still get that feeling. I don't know if you're the same, but I still get that feeling when I see the blue cage, and you know, as yeah. as, as rotten as as you know the the Zeus Macho and and yeah. you know kind of tag team was. It's still. I spend the entire time aching from grinning because I'm enjoying it so back, much. You look back, you know? and all that's still, all that's still a pop culture phenomenon, and all of it is still remembered unbelievably well. And now you look, you look now. There's all these amazingly popular and um, 
so much listened to and they're making a fortune on advertising and patreons and things like that. all mm. these podcasts that are done with all the stars of yesteryear now and a lot of them are topical about a certain pay-per-view from back then or a certain year from back then or a certain character from back then yeah do you think in 30 years time there's gonna be <laughs> either there's gonna be the same level of interest about the current era they just didn't. No. I mean, what were we going to talk about? You know, so, and so, do, do you know what? It's the same with, with footy as well, though, isn't it? You know, to a degree. Where yeah, I mean, I have, really, a, yeah. I have a kind of soft spot for, like, the, I kind of, don't get me wrong, I love football as well. I still love footy and I still, you know, still huge Latics fan and stuff. But I kind of do hark back to those days when it was a bit different and it was a bit, it seemed much easier to enjoy the product because you didn't have all this crap around it you know and and and, and, and you're right who's going to remember why i mean I, i'll be honest i struggle to i struggle to tell you most people on the wwe roster now yeah apart from the, the marquees i wouldn't know anybody and that's you know. what i mean I, maybe it's just us that are of our generation and Could it's a, and it's a nostalgia thing i'm open to have that debate but i still don't as i say when i put that example to myself or I put it to others, can I see in 30 years' time there being 20 mainstream podcasts with 20 different superstars from this era talking about, on a weekly basis, all of them doing a two- to three-hour podcast about yeah. all the different things and all the different uh, memories. And, and I think, surely not. Surely that can't yeah. be. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so No, I, th- I think you're absolutely spot on, mate. I think you're absolutely spot on. So, um, I mean, just just going back to Dynamite and Davey then, because I mean, it is as I say, you know, it's a it's a it's a great it's a great story in itself, regardless of of your book, which is fantastically written about it. All, but it is when you look at it on the face of it, it's an incredible story, as you say. These two cousins from Wigan, you know, like kind of near Wigan, that basically one is without doubt, I think, one of the most influential wrestlers of of all time you know you can even trace a line between the stuff that that tom was doing and the athleticism and, and all that right through to today you know i mean and, and there are countless aren't there you know big names as it were who will cite him as i wanted to be like dynamite kid i want you know and and then you had davy boy as well who, who kind of came up and you know in in a sense after the bulldog split became an even bigger star than Dynamite, which, as as you quite rightly point out, you know, isn't always wasn't always to Tom's liking. But you know, it's an incredible story, isn't it? And then you've got the sadness, you've got the whole tragedy around both characters about the lifestyles they led, because that was the lifestyle of wrestlers at the time. I mean, I, I remember um, again going back to Ed and him telling me that you know, the number of guys that he knew that you know could only survive on painkillers and drink and, and other drugs just to get them through because they were in so much pain and, you know, but it's just such a, a fascinating story, isn't it? The whole thing. Yeah. It's, it's completely unique, even within, even within that world and that era that we're talking about of professional wrestling, the, the bulldog story is completely unique that um, Tom being the, unbelievable trailblazer that he was for the smaller athletic guy um completely setting new standards for that um 
but having to push the boundaries and and the, the, yeah. it's just so ironic that he whilst he was determined to break down them barriers and glass ceilings that he did um he had to push himself beyond whatever yes. he, he should have been doing you know the extra steroids to make himself legitimate uh in that era of the giant and um that meant that he had to take these extra bumps to really make himself stand out. That yeah. led to the back and the knee problems. That led to the painkillers and the alcohol abuse. And and yeah, and he just he, he says openly, or I did say, um, he absolutely loved the lifestyle. You know, it was short and sweet, I suppose, in the great scheme of things. But mm. he lived for it. He loved the wrestling. He loved the show. He loved putting on a performance and he loved the partying and that side of things and the drink mm. and the drugs. He was living the life of a rock star whilst being a sportsman in his eyes. And it's almost like the best of both worlds that you could possibly have in, in his eyes at the time. Davey's first cousin, three years younger comes along hero worships him and follows in his footsteps. And it's just so it's, it's, it's I truly believe it's Shakespearean the way that, he he followed in his footsteps, yeah. Shook him off when he became so uh, such a negative influence on him. He'd stayed yeah. so loyal to him for so so long. Finally, um, made the decision that enough for enough. If he wanted to be a success in his own right, he had to he had to go his separate ways. Cut them ties. That led to that uh, acrimonious split. Never spoke to each other ever again. Yeah. Um, but it was it, it it was too late, and it, whilst it took still a few years to truly uh, take a hold of Davy, mm. it was still too late. The steroids, the painkillers, yeah, the lifestyle, already had already gripped him. And so while he went on and had them few years of ma- major mainstream success, which Tom missed out on because he'd uh, ended his career not voluntarily, but, you know, yeah, yeah. His, his own decisions and his own um, actions sort of ended his career so early in a wheelchair when he was sort of 37. Um, but it was too late. David David already sort of built up these these addictions or whatever, you know. And, mm. and so whilst they had that mainstream exposure, which further embittered Tom, he ended up having, well, an even worse fate, you know, at the same sort of age that Tom yeah. went in a wheelchair. Unfortunately, David died. Um and it was, it, I do but I've, I've used that word quite a lot thinking about it, that Shakespeare, and it is, I, I, I don't it think, is. I think if you wanted to write a tragic, a, a tragic sporting story, uh, if it were fiction, people would probably say it were too far away from reality to be real, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I said, the, the fact that they've come from absolutely nothing, this mining town, first yeah. cousins lived just a couple of streets away, I've been on the walks on their streets, and you know, so local to each other for them to have the careers that they did break down the walls that they did earn the sort of money that they did have the lifestyle and the fame and the adulation be truly the best in the world at what they were doing. Mm. Um, I mean, both as singles and tag team, uh, they both changed the wrestling landscape forever. Uh, But then to, for, for him to just, go one step too far with it all you know that's how it feels mm. it feels like and i sort of pinpoint it from both a little bit in my own mind and i interround it in the book i always like to make the reader join the dots and mm. um they'll take their own conclusions away but i think you can see 
a period where they both had a little glimmer of light where they could have, they'd still had the success. They could have took the foot off the pedal and they could have, but they were, yeah. they were addicted. They weren't just addicted to the substances and stuff. They were addicted to the, the show and the, yes. Uh, and so you know, it's got to be so difficult to take away from them. We know so much more now about um, sportsmen suffering with mental health and, mm. and everything like that. And we know so much more about things like CTE. Yeah. Yep. They, they, they were truly, I think for a long period of time, they believed they were in the right place at the right time. Wrestlers had never had the opportunity that they had to be rich and famous. And they stumbled across that, that first wave of major success and major stardom. Mm. But in hindsight, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time because th- they was given that lifestyle without any form of seatbelt on them that, that people have got now. You know, they, they were just given given license to to take it as far as they yeah. possibly could and, and, and yeah. they took it too far. Well, they did. And, and, and there are examples of that, aren't they? Even, even with their relationship. Because when, when you read your book, one thing that I do find, I, I found myself surprised and was feeling quite sorry for for Davey at points because, you know, Tom was literally dragging, dragging him around, wasn't he? You know, and like he was making all the calls and Davey was much more the passive member. And, you know, and there's, there's that story, isn't it, about the first time that, that uh, Davey has to blade and he doesn't know what to do. And, and, you know, basically Tommy cuts him and cuts him so badly that he ends up getting rushed to hospital. And, and, and there's an element of that that you think, you know, that, because Tommy, you know, from from what I've read, you know, within his book and other things and, and your book, there's that element where, you know, he, he did believe that, like him, you know, you had to work your way and earn your way up. Nobody did him any favours and it was all off his own graft. And there was that little bit of resentment, wasn't there, with, with Davey that, that he felt he was, he was coming over and riding his coattails and stuff. And then you could you could see that perspective, I suppose. But, you know, that Davey was a, he was a pretty good talent in his own right, you know, and... Um, it's fascinating that that dynamic between them as well, isn't it? I, I, and oh, you really draw that out, like it, I genuinely not just saying this again. I think you draw that out better than anything I've ever read or seen about them about that relationship. You know, well, it means a lot that you said that because it was that was the bit that I was owning in on that I don't I didn't think had ever been truly told and yeah. exposed, um, especially as you say, Davy era worshiping him to that level. Um, where, but these things that Tom were putting him through, as you say, the, the blading incident and um, get introducing him to steroids, and it were almost like you were testing him all the time, and and yeah. it did become a genuine point where he just thought Davis passed all the tests, is here, is here to stay, and mm-hmm. it took him seriously as a as an equal for a lot of years. Then, which he, I think that. It, it took a lot from everything that I can gather. And I tell it in the book that it took a lot to break down them walls with Tom. It was yes. so, um, so guarded. And so I think there were an awful lot of resentment to what the things that he had to do, especially when, it, when he went to America and he saw that, especially in the WWF people didn't have to pay them dues. All they had to do were look right yeah. Uh, yeah. or, or be a name, be it from a different sport or a different, uh, a different sphere of yeah. uh, fame and they could get in through that back door and go instantly in on more ma- more fame than him. And he despised that and he resented it. 
in the war period where I think you felt the same about Davy and that Davy was only there and only having that success because mm. uh, because he was pretty much copying what Tom had done and following Tom's steps. But what, what Tom didn't realise at that point, because he weren't on the side at Worldwide, Davy were doing it, is that Davy were paying every inch of them dues himself as well. And yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it, it genuinely um, created himself into a, a, a sensational young talent that were taking the UK by storm. So um, I think what Tom needed to do at that point will prove it to himself that David were, were legitimate and could stay. So it, 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 it sort of, yeah, almost a little bit of torture of him and bullying yeah, him yeah. Um, at them early stages. But it eventually got to the point where David passed the test and then they, they became this sort of inseparable duo in and out of the ring at each other's back, so loyal to each other. Um but again, that was just one thing that went to one step too far. You know, uh, I'm sure in hindsight, most people agree when they read the book. Davy shouldn't have walked out of the WWF in complete 100% loyalty to Tom as he did after the, the Rucho incident. Yeah. He walked out of the WWF out of complete loyalty to Tom. Uh, he walked out on the, the fame and the money and went back to Stampede on a fraction of the money mm. back in, you know, uh, small, smoky arenas and all that um, out of pure loyalty. And and I think what you realise when you read the book is that that was a mistake, but it was a mistake made with a, a big heart, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, you, you're right that um, of the two, it was almost like a kind of, um, as you say, almost hero worship. Tom did well he, he did didn't he for a long time you know and I think it it kind of I, I don't know it's hard to say but you wonder how much that breakup affected Davy as well in his later years because you know it, it I think it meant from everything I've read and seen and, and stuff it meant a lot to him that relationship even though he was he was like the, the bullied brother all the time. Do you know what I mean? I used to have a brother that tortured me when I was a kid. And, and you know, but I still thought the world of him, even though, to be honest, he was a right bastard at times. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think I think what it was, it, 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 I don't think he'd contemplated uh, at that point a wrestling career without Tom. I, I think yeah. that he thought, because he was, the, the term got used a lot in a lot of the research that I did, that David was a follower, not a leader. And I, I don't think he necessarily at that stage had the self-confidence where he thought that he could go on and have a sensational singles career. Or, mm. or I, I think he still believed probably with a little bit of um, self-doubt or self-awareness, whatever it might be, what Tom almost didn't suffer from. He had this huge confidence, knew exactly how good he was, knew his own self-worth. Mm. Uh, I think David probably thought, uh, questioned what he could do without him. And as it turned out, it was fantastic in his own right and, and went on to have a great career. Um, obviously cut short tragically, but, yeah. um, uh, but yeah, I, I do think that that, that dynamic of them as the war is, is something is what makes the story truly unique. You know, there's so many other tragic wrestling stories from around that time mm. uh, and people who died young, but I think that their dynamic as cousins and that roller coaster relationship that they had is what makes this story so unbelievably unique. It is. Yeah, I, I agree. And like you you hit the nail on the head when you said if you wrote this as a story if you'd written this as a fiction novel, 
it would have probably been slated because it would have been, well, that's a bit far-fetched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, yeah, know yeah. I mean? yeah. you would, wouldn't you? You'd kind of think, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be like some kind yeah, of a storyline from the from the modern WWE, wouldn't it, where it'd just be so ridiculous that you'd, you'd disengage straight away. But yeah. the fact that it genuinely, um, it, well, it was genuine for a start. And, you know, there's also another little element that I always love when you read, you know, because I was having a flick through, back, back through your book, obviously. I'm, I'm going back through Bret Hart's book at the moment. And I was uh, I was just having a flip through uh, Pure Dynamite, you know, which is obviously uh, Tom's book, which is is a heavily sanitized version, I think, of his life. If you read it, it's a good read, but you know, I think somebody did a lot of work on that to, to clean it up for him. Mm. But it's very clear as well that it's full of regret all the way through. That you know, even starts off by talking about how you know, he's, he's, he's 40 at this point and his career is over after 16 years. And, you know, and it's, it's just got so much regret through it and an undertone of probably there is that anger that bubbles under. And I can, I can understand why, you know, he lived for wrestling, didn't he? And he was, a, he was a real trailblazer, as you say. And it's a, it's a very think- tragic story, but it was, it's so good. And not from a ghoulish way. It's so fascinating. Um, it's just we'll never see something like that again. No, no, and and in sort of ninety or ninety five percent of ways, that's a good thing, obviously, because yeah, because the but the negative side of that, that five or ten percent that I'm on about, is the fact that, as we said earlier, you're never going to get that um, that level of authenticity i think is the word i want to yes. use i'm not quite sure what i mean by it but you, you you knew that these were guys who had a story you know you knew that there were there was something about them they were gritty they were uh, mm. and, and it came through the tv screen at you that um despite the outlandish gimmicks there was something about it that felt authentic whereas now it just feels like um or to me, looking at it from the outside now, it just feels like there's a conveyor belt of athlete that that just to, to mould them into what a wrestler maybe should be um, in a textbook yeah. somehow. Whereas yeah. there, they were all different. Every you know, and uh, and the one that and yeah, just going back to pure dynamite as you mentioned, I, I, what I think it screams a pure dynamite. Unfortunately, um, I think it's so authentic from him, uh, but. It's the, the trouble with that. It's a snapshot in time of how we were feeling at that time, and yes. so. And I think that that's where it, it's. A, I think I think the two books are good for each other. In a way, my book couldn't be what it was without that. Obviously, mm. both guys would uh, passed away when I came to write the book. I think they had to be. I don't think the book could have been written with one mm. of them as a as a first hand source still alive and the other one not. I don't think that would have been fair or balanced. Uh, I think the book could have only existed uh, and been truly fair and balanced with both guys, unfortunately passed away. Um, but obviously it's a priceless reference tool for me to yeah. use. And by the same point, I, I do think that my book complements it greatly because it, my mind's got, I've had the ability to step back and I've had 20 odd years since 23 years since he wrote that 21, 22, whatever it might be uh, years since he wrote that for everything to sort of simmer and settle down. I think when he wrote that, there's almost an, it's almost too, too raw. I think, you know, it, it, mm. it's, it's just talking to a ghostwriter with what 
his thoughts and feelings are at that snap, snapshot in time mm. in the year 1999, you know, uh, and that comes through his feelings towards David, come through even um, his feelings towards Brett, you know, he, he's, yeah. he's very unkind to Brett in it. And I know that they, um, they'd been very close friends uh, in the past and they ended up uh, having some chats via Skype and stuff like that. Uh, and it were all water under the bridge yet. A lot of people won't know that, and they'll just people who just read pure dynamite, and they'll think that there were this forever, yes. forever and lengthy bitterness between the dynamite kid and Brett, and it's just not true. It's just how he felt at that particular time yeah. while while Brett was an absolute superstar, and the dynamite kid <laughs> was in you know in a wheelchair stabbing, stubbing out his fags into into empty beer bottles and living in it's poverty. A, you know, yeah, it, it's a it's a man suffering. Horrendous yeah. depression, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so, uh, so where where a book should last forever, it kind of feels like that. Where it, it should almost be treated as a, a snapshot yeah. in time. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. Absolutely. I mean, you're right. You've summed it really well. And it is. It's that. It is like that snapshot of a. Of a it's almost like a study of somebody's mind, isn't it? You know, in a particular time in their mm. life, and it's it's a very sad read, but it is a. It's a. It's a great read as well. Yeah. Um. You're right. There are a few things in there that if you only, if you, you know, because some people can be a bit myopic about people and characters and, and stuff. And if you only ever read that and you only ever watched Dark Side of the Ring, you just think he was a complete and utter, like, arsehole, wouldn't you? You know what I mean? And there's so much more to him that you brought out in your book. You know, there was so, so much more to his life and well, so think, much more I'd to I'd what like to made think, him who he was. Yeah, the, the, I'd like to think what know. I brought out was the the whys and the wheres and the uh, rather than just you know an anecdote in isolation is is what it is whereas when you apply the context and the timeline you know you were 18 years old when he went across you know (laughs) you you know and he went over there with a chip on his shoulder and uh an attitude that nobody were going to walk all over him because that's what he'd been told. Don't let them walk all over you. You yeah. know, nobody ever tells you the side. So we went over there with that attitude and certain people did try and walk all over him. And so he felt like he was honoring, you know, people like his dad and Ted Bentley by standing up to them all the time. And it just, it, that just went on and on. He got the, they got the level of success. And then he met people like Harley Race who had the success by being these hard men who carried guns mm. and that sort of thing. And so it was just one step at a time, one step further, one step further, the steroids, one step further, the painkillers, one step further. And and so the next thing, when you're on page, I don't know, 120, and you've gone through 120 of them little steps, one step further, mm. you're there with him and you've got, you, you can see it from his point of view and you can sympathize and empathize. Mm. Whereas somebody who just tells you that story that might be on page 120, I'm picking a number out of thin air, by the way, but you know, there might be, <laughs> there might be, there might be a bit of a horror story on yeah. page 120. If you read that in isolation, you're going to think what an asshole. Yeah. But after reading the previous 119 pages, you, you're going to be Absolutely. there with, you're going to be there with him. That's what, well, that were always the idea context isn't it it's all yeah. about context yeah. yeah absolutely so just talking about your book and because obviously you know and i know i've, I've said this several times and i, I do to anybody listening to this honestly i don't care if you're a fan of wrestling or not or you've never never heard of tom billington or davy boy smith because some people you know particularly tom you know he did pass a lot of people by um i cannot recommend it enough and and the thing i love about your book as well and and it's going to sound really creepy. This, like, like I'm just, just, just sort of 
arse licking, but I'm not. I love the way that you you made it a tale of three parts, essentially. Um, so there's several things I liked, and I made a note here about it. One is that I loved the way that you structured it into those three distinct periods of life. So you had Dynamite Kid, which basically talks about him and, and young Davy and stuff. Then you had the British Bulldogs, where it all comes together. And then you have the British Bulldog, which is the aftermath. And, you know, it, it was such a great way of structuring the story and structuring their lives because it allowed you to also have that parallel trajectory that was going on. So like you were saying that, you know, Dynamite, you know, as we've, we've alluded to, we feel um, that, you know, he probably at points was uh, somewhat um, reluctant to have Davey over because he felt like he was just getting it easy and having an easy ride. But actually in reality, as you make clear, he's actually, he's earning his stripes. You know, he's doing the work in men's clubs and he's doing all the graft and he's getting all the, the, the skills and experience. But of course, Dynamite wouldn't know that because, you know, you couldn't you couldn't go on YouTube and the internet and have a look, you know. And it just really has that great trajectory where, you know, one career, Dynamite, you know, he's, he's up in the stars and Davey's down here and then all of a sudden they're, they're kind of on par and then it goes the other way where, you know, Davey takes off and Tom obviously descends. And do you know what? I don't know whether that was a deliberate thing and I presume it will be, but honestly, mate, that was so brilliantly done that it, it just held me because a lot of the books you read on this subject and I bet you're the same I, f- I do find it difficult sometimes to keep the thread of what's happening and when but because the way you anchored it around you know um the bouts the the date the time the event what happened and it was just so well written and so easy to follow it was it was absolutely brilliant it was really really good yeah cheers. well I'm glad you've brought that up about the Split up three parts of this, this that were inspired by in two different ways. So one, I did that exact same thing with my second book, as I say, uh, Douglas Clark, the first star, the first it's part one, which is is obviously him growing up and everything like that. It's mm. the first part of his life, but it's completely centered around um, his rugby career. Then, so so that's his rugby life. Uh, and I wanted to give because I felt like these three parts of his life was so equal in, or there should be tret so equally in terms of how he's remembered that I wanted mm. him to be represented equally in the book. So I thought, well, if I split it up into three parts where it's first, it's effectively all his rugby life, then it's his war heroics and his time at war. So part one ends after he came home from the Rocks Drift, legendary Rocks Drift tour, right. after playing such an, an amazing part in that huge upset victory, which if people don't know about it, sensational story, uh, sporting story, came, came home and obviously it was a rather long journey home from Australia uh, in 1914. Yeah. Uh, it came home to find out that we were now at war. Mm. Um, and so that ends there and it goes into his his war life. And so I've made sure that they were almost equal in, in word count mm. and page count. So it's, it's, it's raw, his war diaries and everything like that is next. And then it's his wrestling career that he went on to after. And obviously, it all sort of merges because he went, he did a bit of rugby in between and that, but uh, when he got back from the war. So, but the breakdown of it, I loved it because it gave me a structure. Obviously, I'm still, I was still new. This was my only my second book. Mm. I was still new to structuring a story and how I wanted to tell a story. And I found that splitting up into them three parts and giving me a word count target for each part and, you know, a number of chapters that I wanted to wait, a number of scenes that I wanted to tell. And I thought that it, it gave me a real focus and, and everything. I thought 
I'd like to do it like that again in the future. But I didn't start off doing Dynamite like that, but it back of my mind, uh, mm. doing Dynamite and Davey like that. But then what happened was well, when I started Dynamite and Davey, I realised that it was so Dynamite Kid Heavy, that first bit. So Dynamite mm. Kid Heavy. And because he'd had an autobiography out, and by the way, I'd, I'd had... I'd submitted my pitch to pitch publishing and had the accepted and it were all signed, sealed and delivered. You know, I'd got, I'd got a publication date and everything like a week later, they announced that they're doing dark side of the ring, which kind of took the wind out of my sails. I thought, Oh, they're going to beat me to a lot of this, especially when I found that Bronwyn were in it and she was going to tell a bit of the same story that she, that I wanted her to tell for mine and things like that. Mm. Um, and, and so I know that them stories were going to get told again. There'd been a documentary like 10 years earlier about Tom as well, a Kickstarter one that's like an hour long or what, um, that's quite good. There'd never been really much out about Davey. And so when I started writing, I was plowing away through part one and it would, I'd got all these resources. So I'd got Brett's book, Tom's book, uh, a documentary that had been done about Dynamite. There were a documentary mm-hmm. coming out. Uh, by that point, I were in touch with a couple of Hart siblings, getting some first-hand yeah. accounts, uh, Mick Foley's, but all these different things, all the different internet stories and shoot interviews. I got all this. It was so Dynamite Kid Heavy, and I thought, hang on. What if people have just seen Dark Side of the Ring, if that just comes out, and then they're going to open this book, and it's going to, if they've already read Pure Dynamite, and they've already read Brett's book, are they going to feel like, hang on, it's just retelling all that? even though I knew there were loads of unique stories to come and there were loads of explosive and uh, stories to come that hadn't been covered before. And then there were all yeah. the Davy stuff to come, which had been covered so much less because there'd been none of these publications out. I thought to myself, how do I let the reader know that that's coming? I thought if I call it part one, the dynamite kid, then they're, they're almost going into that expecting that to know that, right, this is going to be real Tom Billington centric. Mm. So, and what I realized was that, they were also equal in in both length, uh, in terms of time, mm-hmm. time spans, and uh, the amount of twists and turns and scenes that I wanted to focus on and things that happened. The three parts: the Dynamite Kid, the British Bulldogs as a tag team, and then finally Davies. Uh, it, it finishing is obviously it's very Davy centric towards the end because unfortunately Tom. Didn't have many stories to tell in that in that yeah. final part of his yeah. life, um, and so when I realised that, it gave me the opportunity to go back and do the three part structure again that I liked so much from my previous book, and I felt like it'd give any reader, even if it were almost subconsciously, as the as the started, and it's it's pretty much all about the dynamite kid. I think I think chapter seven might be called Young David. Well, it is chapter seven yeah. called Young David, uh, and that's really David's big introduction. So your first six chapters are pretty much all Tom. Mm. And I just started to worry that people might get to chapter five, chapter six, thinking, hang on a minute. I know most, I've I've heard most of this already uh, through one source or another. Davy's name hasn't even come up yet. Whereas I I just thought if by by splitting up into them three distinct Mm. parts, people would, even if it was subconsciously, they'd almost be expecting that. Uh, And yeah, I, I do think it works really well. It does, and I'll tell you what, mate, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I was enjoying it that much that I, I didn't, you know, I knew it was, I knew Davey was coming into it at some point, but I didn't care when because it was just so much fun to read. It was so well written and so yeah, interesting. And, and I mean, there's one of my favourite bits is in that part as well. So uh, you might notice, if you, especially if you've scanned Pure Dynamite recently, uh, I I did a, another version of his sort of first big meeting with Harley Race. So it's, that's the anecdote where yeah. uh, Keith Hart ends up, scrapping with 
uh, Ali Race in, in in a ditch in the middle of the night, and um, Tom's there and gets involved and all this, and that's like it's a real big turning point because it's he, he ends up here worshiping Ali Race. They become mm. such good friends, and he, he, I think it, with the David Edbor and other things like that, that he based mm. himself for the you know carrying guns, uh, based himself around Ali or, or did certainly respect Ali to that level. So the first time he met him and had that interaction with him to that point where you could argue he earned Ali's respect in that anecdote. I really want to include that and it, the, that anecdote is in Tom's book, but it's like, I think it's like three quarters of a page in Tom's book. It's not long at all. It's, yeah. uh, it's almost like a throwaway thing, but he gets it so wrong. So I'd done like a an elaborate version of what Tom had written, hitting all them same marks, but really wanted to focus on the, the bits that came out of it. So the respect that he earned from Ali and things like that. And, and so mm. when I sent that chapter to Ross to proofread for me, which he was do, it was so wonderful like that. He said, no, you've got that. You've got that all wrong. He said, well, have you read this? And I said, well, it's in Tom's book. He went, well, Tom, he says, yeah, I think you're right. He says, I, I, he hadn't read Tom's book for a while. He said, but it's completely right. So he'd got the people that were there wrong. It was, he, Tom had written it, that it was Brett that were in the car and it was Keith. Uh, and he hadn't, it, it just, it, it skimmed over it too much. So what had actually yeah. happened when they had this face-to-face confrontation, when they all stepped out of the car, it skimmed over that in a couple of lines when really it was, it were almost like a comical, um, a comical drunken scrap that ensued, you know? And, <laughs> um, and so I wanted to embellish that a bit more rightly. So, so Ross put me in touch with Keith then. Um, he said, you need to speak to my brother Keith. So he put me, and I explained what I wanted and what I wanted to accomplish to Keith. And he said, right, I'll help you with this, definitely. And so he sent me a real long, on Facebook Messenger as well, you know, it, it, he sent me a real long, detailed thing, even down to that's where I got what beer it was they were drinking, the strength of the beer. Which is, and he gave me all this unbelievable detail on it. And so I'd gone from this sort of scrappy bits of detail, which turned out to be, misremembered by Tom in his book to this amazing, yeah. and I was laughing out loud reading Keith's version of the event and what I remembered from it. And, and so stuff like that kept happening. And that's when I really felt like the quality of the book and yeah. the uniqueness of it. So when I've just been saying there that I was kind of worried that people might, for them first few chapters, think that they might have heard most of it before. I knew that even though cause people would have known that, some people might have remembered the anecdote from pure dynamite but when that happened and things like that kept happening i knew mm. that i was taking all them anecdotes to another level to, to another level of detail and yeah. knitting it into a, a a real um story with a beginning a middle and an end and, and that's when i really started to feel it coming together and that's like it's like the ultimate prime example of it that i think yeah no it's, it's absolutely superb and it, it, it's funny because i was going to ask you about things like that about you know, the beer and the strength yeah. and, and, and little things like that, that really, really kind of bring it into that reality thing and add that bit of kind of context to it. Yeah. And well, it was, to it as well. A similar thing. What Bronwyn told me about in mid nineties, when she was sort of 11 year older and a little brother came to visit Tom and he was, you know, struggling before he'd got into the wheelchair, but he wanted mm. to spend a summer with them. I really wanted to take him out. I wanted to take him to Blackpool pleasure beach. And Bronwyn told me this memory that she'd got of the car breaking down. Um, <laughs> And so I obviously didn't have much details and I like to like to give them sort of details. So, uh, and to paint a picture for people with words. And so I went to Tom's brother, Mark, and I said, look, mid nineties, what car would he have had? And he told me, I think it's like silver Sierra that I managed to write in. So, <laughs> and so you can, I can imagine this rust bucket of a silver Sierra now breaking down 
away. Yeah. And she, Bronwyn told me approximately how long she thought it were into the journey. So I'm at the journey out. So I thought they'll probably on this long road here. I can't remember what road. So then, you know, I pieced it together and all of a sudden I'd got, I'd got a car and a road and, yeah. and, and I managed to, uh, sort of paint that picture then which i don't again i just don't think it had really been done before fantastic it's it's really good mate really good and i guess just just going back to um i know ross writes the um the intro to it and, and he, as you say he's alluded to he's been very he was very helpful through it and you've got quite a lot of um quite a lot of great people in there you know great wrestling people who contribute to the stories as well i mean how how easy was it doing that kind of research and getting something, getting back off people? And because I always have this thing about it, it, it must be difficult for wrestlers who live in this world of kayfabe and and a lot of the law that that surrounds people and themselves sometimes and things like that. And at what point, you know, sometimes do people misremember that some of the, some of the tales that maybe they've told for 30, 40 years weren't quite accurate or some lots. of things that you know and did you get much of that do you think lots of, lots yeah. lots and lots and lots and lots and that's why I'd, <laughs> that's why i definitely didn't want to go down the route of and so and so said this and using direct quotes all the time what yeah. people had told me yeah. or what i'd read from certain people because uh, it was there were a lot of it was so contradictory so uh, in terms of time I'd, I'd done so much research i mean shoot interviews and stuff like that that wrestlers do now are such an amazing resource the internet is an amazing resource yeah you know pe- somebody like me can deliver a book the, the Chappaquensi book that I did mm. was based on purely internet research I did a, I did one or two interviews with people who told me brand new information other than that it was deep diving into internet research uh so that and obviously going back 30 or 40 years that simply could not have been done somebody to, to deliver that book that I did on Chappaquensi would have probably had to go to Brazil mm. um now you don't have to, you know, in, 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 it's that's great. So for this, I was satisfied that because of the controversial nature, a lot of it, I might not get direct family members involved, especially these yeah. big names that end in art and things like that. And, yeah. um, and on the other side of the world and, you know, who am I from little old, but because I said earlier, all the pre- previous publications were so, um, all, from either a Canadian or an American, they're all publication. Them publications, mm. you know, that aren't, aren't quite transcended over here, and it felt like their legacy was so much more indelibly linked over there because of that. Really wanted to bring that home, so I thought if the best I can do is to take all the sources that I can find on the internet and Brett's book, Tom's book, Mick Foley's book, mm. other books where there's little anecdotes and stuff mentioned, uh, I'll find more and more of them. If I can just take all them resources together, Diana Art's book, um, stuff like that, and and just Bruce Art has done a book, um, piece it all together to make this coherent whole and deliver it to a UK audience. Then that might that that that'll do. If that if even if that's all it is, then that'll do for me. If I can go one step further and get family members and other wrestlers and things like that involved, then that's even better. So I set off writing and it was delivered and I'd signed up dotted line. I was going to deliver this book for pitch publishing before mm. I'd made contact with any family member. And I'd tried, I'd tried and I'd tried and I'd tried Georgia Smith, Davies yeah. daughter, who is sort of the curator or the sort of first yeah. point of contact, if you like, for Davies or Davies legacy stuff. And I tried Bronwyn, who was the equivalent for Tom. 
didn't hear back from either of them. I tried Harry Smith, Tom's son. Mm. Uh, couple of members of our family, you know, happen to have maybe, you know, DMs open, but, you know, you'd, you'd never know if the, what settings there are, it's probably hidden away somewhere, that message that I've sent, or it could be an old email address, whatever it was, I, I was just yeah. getting, I was just getting no responses. Um, and it were actually because I'd broken down a, a wall to a wrestling historian based in the US who loved the Douglas Clark book. Right. I mentioned it to him. I'd uh, exchanging messages with him. I said, "Look, would you mind doing?" I'd, I'd asked him if he'd like help me with some fact checking and stuff for Dynamite Davy. He got so excited when he found out I was doing Dynamite Davy. Uh, yeah. He said, "Yeah, of course I will." I said, "Look, I'd really like to speak to it." Well, Bruce Hart at the time. Bruce Hart's got such a, such an important part of the story. Is Bruce Hart mm. from start to finish? He discovers Tom when he's over here wrestling from Canada. He takes Tom over to Canada. Yeah. He has yeah. such a huge up and down. Um, relationship with both dynamite and davy on a personal level you know i won't say mm. too much for people like reddit here but there's some explosive <laughs> explosive dramatic <laughs> and scandalous stuff goes on there yeah. um, and so i really want to speak to bruce even though he'd written this book brett doesn't speak too highly of bruce in his book you know in terms of no. uh, bruce's ability to um sort of make it all about him if you like or whatever it might be but so i really wanted to dig deeper with bruce on a couple of aspects get a bit of a unique take on it from him um and so dave dynasty as he's called um says to me it's uh give me the name bob johnson he says bob johnson's the guy you want to speak to is active on facebook and he's an elderly guy now he's bob says he's active on facebook he'll get back to you i'm sure uh and he's he's a, still a really close friend of Bruce's and, and a lot of members of the Art family. And sure enough, that was how I made contact. Bob mm. says to me, I'll speak to Bruce. Bruce is a little bit of a recluse now. He's not very technical, te- technically li- uh, literate. Mm. And so he, he said, went up to his cabin or whatever one day next time he saw him and he mentioned that this book were happening and um, that I'd like to speak to him. And he said, yeah, I'll speak to him. So it was like a Saturday night with time difference over here, time conservatory. We had like a three or four hour chat and it was great. Fantastic. It went really, really well. Um, we just went all down sort of avenues of, you know, he were really interested to hear about my Douglas Clark book. And, and he gave me a lot of answers that I wanted to get out of him about the actual story and put some more meat on the bones and stuff that were in his book. And, you know, so the contradictions between him and what Tom had wrote and what him and what Brett had wrote. And I just wanted to, you know, so it gets a bit of, um, yeah. bit of clarification or stuff. And I, I felt like I'd got all that from... Now, what I didn't realise, well, that must have made a really good impression because within a matter of days, Ross Art got in touch with me and said, I've heard about your book. Uh, my brother mm-hmm. Bruce has told me about your, your book. Um, I think I could really add to it as well. I've got a lot of memories of... Tom and Davey as wrestlers and as family members and as friends. So that's absolutely fantastic. So we arranged a Skype call. Ross is younger, a lot more technical. So, you know, things like Skype and that were a lot easier with, to organize with yeah. him. And so um, spoke to Ross at length, three or four hours again, really, really productive. And he was so much more readily available via email. So every time I'd written an extra chapter or whatever, I, I, oh, well, even before I'd written it, I'd, I'd, I could write Ross quite a long email with some is this true? Do you think this is true? What yeah. do you know about this? And he'd yeah. give me a really long, detailed response every time in writing, which that's even better than having the 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 audible interview because it's just there. You can you can yeah. just 
read through it and refer back to it all the time rather than having to transcribe or whatever. So, uh, And then within a matter of days, again then, uh, Harry Smith and Bronwyn both got back to me saying, Uncle Ross has told us about your book. Um, uh, assured us that it's going to be good, that you've sold it mm. well, what you're going to do well. Um, like to be involved. So that was so exciting. That was the point where I know, wow, this is going to, this is the real deal. This yeah. is the book that's going to be remembered as the definitive British Bulldog story. It's it off with Bronwyn straight away. Um, Ari Watt, so he was we exchanging messages every now and again, but it was sort of, a long time to get back. It were a little mm. bit of a little bit cold, you know. But he was saying, "I'll I'll give you some quotes. I'll give you whatever." Um, but Bronwyn was offering sort of photos, uh, unique yeah. anecdotes and stuff, and um, and then around the time Harry resigned for WWE, he just went completely cold on me, like just didn't respond at all, and I didn't want to turn Go into ahead. some kind of stalk, so I just left it at that. I thought right, he's obviously yeah. decided against it. Um, fair enough. Uh, I'd spoken to Georgia Smith through a third party, explained her side of the story to her. She got back to me, um, wishing me luck with the project, but saying that, and this were all like Seth through an agency that represent Davy's interests on her behalf. Um, right. Wish, wish you luck with the, um, wish you luck with what you're doing. Well done for, you know, I don't know the exact words, but uh, thank you for showing an interest in Davy's legacy. Um, conflicting, uh, projects mean that can't mm. contribute and can't offer anything at this time. Um, I thought, right, fair enough. That's, mm. I felt disappointed that I weren't going to have that balance where we're going to have someone from each side, but I thought I've got to crack on then. Out of nowhere, Diana Hart got in touch with me. Um, wow. Diana Hart got in touch with me and I thought, wow, this is it. I've got that side of it from now on, from now. And we had a, a long Skype yeah call uh really productive and now we're, we're not far off getting the first draft finished then and, and but unfortunately then um sent us some of the details of the things i were going to cover and she was to say she was unhappy was would be an understatement um <laughs> and it was just a matter of the fact I'd, i tried explaining about context and about this yeah. but the fact that the fact that i were covering the the the, the issues that yeah, and that I had to cover. You know, there were no way. I mean, it wouldn't have been. It had it, been fire. It'd have been no good as firewood if I hadn't. Have, if, if I hadn't mentioned some of these things, we have people who are expecting to read uh, a, a, a story about David Boy, and you don't mention steroids, or you don't mention painkillers, or I you don't. don't mention. You know, you, you know, it's, it's just not. It's not going to be a good book, is it? So no, uh, no. And so to say our working relationship broke down would be an understatement. Um, and then, yeah, um, I think that they thought, and yeah, I'll stress the fact that this is just me sort of piecing it together. But I think that, I think they thought that without them on board, it it just maybe wouldn't happen. It'd just go away. And so I put a tweet out one day. They must have been watching my timeline. I put a tweet out one day that I'd delivered the book. You know, I'd, mm. I'd, 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 you know, final copy were done. It had been sent into the publisher and. Uh, walk up to long emails, you know, threatening legal action and all sorts of things, you know, which, mm. which sort of made the, it, it made the actual publication. We had to sort of, we took it back a step and took us time and went, through, yeah. got got some lawyers involved, make sure that there was nothing in there that could be challenged or anything like yeah, that. And yeah. we were happy that there weren't and stuff like that. But it just, yeah, it, it, 
it saddened me. I always wanted that balance and I always wanted family members on board. I, I think it's so beneficial to Davy's legacy. Uh, yeah. The, the, but the story told in the way that I, that I tell it, um, I do genuinely, truly believe that it's so beneficial for his legacy. Um, You're right. I, 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 I truly wish that they were on board with it, but they're not. And we've sort of reached an impasse. You know, there's no, there's no ill feeling on my part. I'd like, I think there probably is on their part. Unfortunately, I don't know. But again, for me to change it based on what I think they wanted wouldn't have been right. It wouldn't have been fair on Bronwyn, who had been and Michelle, um, Tom's ex-wife, Bronwyn's mum, who had been so open and honest with me. It yeah. wouldn't have been fair for me to sort of, you know, wipe bits off Dave and you know. So it, it just put me in a bit of an awkward position, and um, yeah. I'm glad that we got to where we got to with it. Um, like I said, there's no ill feeling on my part. I think they were. I, you know, they've, they've got a WWE documentary, or they had a WWE documentary due to come out, and I don't know if they mm. thought that it might overshadow that or conflict with the WWE thing. I don't know. I think never got, yeah. down, never, were never able to get down to the nitty gritty with them. But it's yeah, a that, tricky that's one. It, it was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think it's tricky because you can see it from their perspective where possibly they were worried that this was going to be yet another, you know, no matter how you pitched it. Was it just going to go down that route of casting everybody in a bad light and being salacious and all the rest of it? Which I, it is. I get it. I completely you know, get it. And that's why. And it's, that's why it Bronwyn, is a shame, Bron, isn't it? Bron, Bron, turned out Bronwyn had seen the messages there that yeah. I initially sent her. She was standoffish. She didn't want anything to do with it. It took Ross to break down that barrier. That's where I've told yeah. the story and the way I've told it. Um, so she thought the same. But I think the difference was that I think, I think a lot of the difference is. And this again, this is just me. I think, I think because their more stories had been told about Tom, it was so blatant that what I was going to be doing, even though I always admit from the start that I'd be talking about them that side mm. of him, and it were almost like because his, it, there were a period of time where I think he were remembered more of this demonic character yeah, than yeah. he was for his awesome wrestling and how we changed the business and and he's it, certainly his plus sides as a person which had never been covered yeah. there was sort of nothing almost nothing to lose i think from from their point of view whereas david he's managed to get a lot of the wwe glossy finish and a lot of the slightly more controversial stuff about him's been um well obviously there, is, there, 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 <laughs> there isn't as much of it you know there just isn't and it's not yeah. you know that's just true um and so, yeah, I think that's what it was. I think that they, I, I truly believe, and it's understandable. And mm. truly, I've not got a bad word to say about them. And uh, no. I wish them all the luck in the world with their future projects. Um, but I think what it, what it came down to was that they just truly want them things to be never mentioned again. And, yeah. and I think that in hindsight, now after I'd finished, now we're analysing it all in my own mind. I think that's what, it came down to it didn't matter the word the word may explain about context and things like that didn't matter the fact that them things were in there yeah made it in their words a smear and all this and yeah yeah uh, and yeah. so yeah where we ended up but uh i'm sort of pleased that we well, you, reached you, some you, kind of standoffish compromise-ish yeah you should be right because it's a great it's a great body work and you know and that, i can see from their perspective as i say that they have probably had that concern um, you know, because they, they, people do like to like retcon things a little bit and airbrush things that don't 
probably suit. But you know, we're all human and we all do things and make mistakes and things. Well, and that's it, exactly how I end it. Uh, you know, um, that both Tom and David made mistakes. I can't remember the exact words I used in the mm. at the beginning of the acknowledgements. You know, they both made mistakes. Um, bad decisions we all do that everybody Absolutely. does that they were doing it under a microscope and um but ultimately when you when you leave this life all you can hope for is that you um leave a legacy a positive overall a positive legacy yeah. behind you and people remember you fondly and both tom and davy have left that the, the both yes. left a loving family behind and they both changed the business that they loved forever and nobody can ever take that away from them. And no, I, 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 so that was always the overall picture that I wanted to present from the book. And I, I'd like to think that I, I did it. You did. And I think it's brilliant. And as I say, you know, I hope it's, I hope it's been a massive success for you because it deserves to be, it's, it's a tremendous book. Um, yeah, it's, it's getting there yeah good good and it deserves it as well and you know because it is a really really great read and it's so well put together and everything i just think it's this and because it's only your third book as well bloody hell mate do you know what i mean <laughs> it's like it's tremendous so just on that um you know what can you talk about any any future projects you might have yeah, i've got I or I've, I've if got, you could, if if you've got something, if you could write anything about anyone, what would it be? Do you know what I mean? Well, that that's the what I think I hit on with Dynamite and David. Well, this niche where it's it's got a real mainstream appeal, and it's a story yeah. that people are going to see the cover and the title and think, "Ooh," you know, and that's going to convince people to purchase it or read it or whatever it might be. Um, it's good. what I what I love to do more than anything a bit like I did with my first two, especially the Chappaquensi, because it had become so, the story just wasn't known at mm. all, sort of in over in in the UK or in the US, however, the story was virtually unknown, uh, especially the background sporting story. Douglas Clark was on the verge of being completely forgotten about everywhere except Huddersfield, mm. you know, completely altogether. I love unearthing these stories, but the problem with them is that by their very nature, they've got a limited reach so niche yeah yeah and so it's striking that balance you don't want to do something that's been completely done before you don't just want to repeat something so anything that's really mainstream and people are going to you feel like people are just going to want to have straight away all the people you think well yeah but where's the creative passion in that where's the drive to do that where's the drive to deliver that something that's completely unknown and you're going to completely unearth something uh, amazing an amazing story but you might sell a matter of hundreds instead of thousands or tens of mm. thousands, you know, and it's striking that balance. I think dynamite and David is the ultimate one for that. So that's kind of where I am, where I'm looking. I'm maybe just waiting for that perfect one to come along that I think, yeah. I think has that. And I've got to have the same amount of passion for it again. I've got a few ideas that I'm just sort of letting percolate and see which one puts its head above the parapet uh, most first. Um, they are obviously it's a sports book publisher that I work with and I have got a, a natural affinity with that. So yeah, there's one or two wrestling related ones, one or two boxing related ones right. uh, that I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of consuming bits and bats of information around them, reading books about yeah. them and just seeing which one really uh, I feel does it, it, that, it, that sweet spot. Brilliant. Well, whatever it is, I, I'm you know I look forward to it, and I'm going to have to pick up your uh, your other ones as well. My one regret with with Dynamite Davies, I didn't I didn't actually 
realise I could get a signed copy from you when I bought it. So next time, I, you know, if I see you at uh, any events or anything, mate, I'll have to bring it along. You'll have to sign it for me. It'd be, uh, actually, uh, I actually think I'm going to be at Wigan in a couple of weeks' time because um, my, br- my, brother's a, my brother works in the movie industry and he's, he's done a short film, 10-minute film, a short film about a war scene from the right. Douglas Clark book. Um, so he works full-time in the wow. industry, but he, he's yeah. sort of, he wants to get into writing and producing and is an animator. And so he's tied all them uh, skills together to produce this sensational 10 minute short film, um, uh, war film about Douglas Clark. Uh, and it's been accepted. He, he only, he only made it live a couple of weeks ago and submitted it into some competitions and for premieres and things and it the first one that's got back to him and accepted it and said it's going to be shown on their big screen is the Wigan and Lee film festival and yeah yeah two or three wow. months time so I that's think amazing. I might think I might go along there with him and and say that so brilliant uh, yeah I'll be in the area excellent excellent stuff mate really good and um just just so that people know because as I've said it's an absolutely brilliant book do you want to tell people where they can you know where they can where they can buy your stuff um either of the uh, any of the three books to be honest I mean I particularly recommend this one because I've read it but the others sound fascinating as well so where can they get your stuff any upcoming events you're going to because I know you've been to you've been doing a couple of kind of wrestling based events recently touring the book a bit um yeah, well, not as much as I'd want to. I mean, just going back to what I said earlier, I, uh, I was booked on the For the Love of Wrestling. Um, I was originally as well. Convention. Um, yeah. I, was, I was booked on that two year, three years ago to, That's take, right. to, to take the Douglas Clark book. Uh, that didn't happen because of COVID. didn't happen again because of COVID. Then I ended up being glad about that because time it finally came around, I'd got the Bulldogs book to go and yeah. sign and sell and promote. And within a day of the event advertising my presence there, I got told I was no longer welcome. And Oh, uh, oh was this to do with uh, another well, guest? Yeah, I, yes, I, Potentially. Right. I strongly suspect so, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there you go. Uh, so yeah, that were a little bit disappointed. They have told oh, yeah. me that I can, they have told me that I can go back next year. They understand that it was a sensitive uh, kind of issue. I don't, I held no ill will towards them, towards no, them no, but no, really, no. it was what it was. Um, Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's in Manchester next year, and I'm, I'm going along to that one. So, yeah, I have been cool. there that. But going back to your original question, yeah, people can find me on – I've got my own personal Twitter, which is at Stephen underscore Bell 1985. Uh, the Bulldogs book's got its own Twitter page, which puts some exclusive sort of stuff out on that, uh, which is at Bulldogs book 123. Um, on the – bio of my personal page you'll see there's a link to my website which is www.stephenbellwrites.com you can buy all my books on that signed copies um whatever you might be if you want to get in touch with me about a package or if you want to get all three i'll absolutely do you a great deal or whatever and uh yeah they're all available there and obviously if the easiest way that you can possibly get it is to shove some more money in jeff bezels's pockets then you're more than welcome to go on amazon (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it's worth getting a worth getting a hand signed copy from you, isn't it, mate? If they can, so I'd. Uh... Are you still signing copies, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, uh, I've, I've got, a, I've got a garage full of them that, yeah, I'm right. uh, delighted to delighted to sign and send. Now it still gives me a little bit of imposter syndrome that what? somebody might want a, a sign, my signature on or something. But do you know what, man? Uh, 
I don't have the biggest audience for this podcast, but I generally, people always say they do quite well out of stuff on the back of it. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping you're going to be pinging me a message going, do you know what? Sold two copies and I'll be like, nice one. Nice one. Job done. I'll be saying that that as well. But no, it's, uh, yeah, no, I've, uh, I've enjoyed that, mate. I really enjoyed it. Good, good, and it's been been great talking to you, mate. And honestly, again, I know I've said it before, but it's it's a it's a cracking read and it's a cracking achievement, and it's just so good, absolutely so good. I think it's it's just been really enjoyable, and it's been great talking to you. And I do appreciate you making the time to come on because um, I know you've you've got you know you can pick and choose what you want to go on to which is great. So I, I genuinely do appreciate you making the time. No, uh, um, you're more than welcome. I'm happy to support sort of local people. And that as soon as I saw the word Wigan, uh, that was me, <laughs> I, I was sold. And uh, yeah, no, you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Thank you, man. Thank you. And um, if you want to see more about my, my work and my artwork and stuff like that, then you can obviously find me at art92.com. Also, art92 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it might be. Um, and if you've enjoyed this show, and if you haven't enjoyed this show, then there's something wrong with you because it's been absolutely cracking. But uh, you can check out previous episodes. They're all available on our new host, which is a cast. Um, you can still find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Music, all the usual kind of podcast catches and things like that. Um don't forget to subscribe um, so you don't miss episodes. And if you if you want to, give us a review because apparently it helps people find the show. I don't know whether that's true or not, but, you know, it's always worth a go, in it? And, uh, yeah, so I just want to thank Steve again. It's been it's been brilliant. Really enjoyed it, mate. It's such a great, great book. And so, so nice to talk to someone who, with, with such a passion as well um, for that kind of era. It's, it's absolutely tremendous. So... Thanks a lot for that, mate. Appreciate no, it. Th- thank you, David. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having it's me. It's brilliant. And uh, until next time, I'll leave you with, uh, you know, uh, a phrase from the legendary wrestler and commentator, Jesse the Body Ventura, who would have probably said about today's show, the pleasure has been all yours. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>